Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Stephanie Cannon. And I'm Alice Bechtel. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Welcome to the podcast, Mike and Chris. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. This episode is a little bit different from our previous episodes as we're featuring a student panel made up of some of our fellow SSP students. To start off this episode, could each of you please offer a brief intro, including your semester and concentration in SSP, as well as any work you're doing? Um, We'll start with Mike. Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, So I am a first semester student at SSP right now. I'm slated to graduate December of 23. Um, I'm not working right now. I'm currently pursuing SSP full-time, but my current concentration is in technology and security with a uh, specific interest on nuclear weapons and deterrence theory. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Christopher, do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself as well? Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Stephanie. Uh, I'm a first semester student as well in SSP, um, doing the technology and security concentration. I'm a part-time student, so I work uh, full-time on Capitol Hill for a member of the House of Representatives, and I handle his Homeland Security portfolio. Uh, That covers everything from producing and working on legislation in the Homeland Security space to prepping the member for for hearings um, with witnesses and also staying up-to-date on all the latest happenings and news in that um, issue area. Uh, I graduated undergrad from the University of Chicago, where I studied political science and astrophysics, So I'm really passionate about emerging technology issues. Great. Thanks, you guys. Um, So based on your educational and professional experiences and studies, start with the grand question. What are your opinions on the emerging national and international security challenges? Kind of a loaded question. And we'll give this to Chris, if you don't mind starting us off. Absolutely, Alice. Uh, Wow, what an easy question. Thanks for, you know, starting off simple for us. Um, I'll break this into to two parts, really. On the domestic front, I think one of the biggest issues that that policymakers are grappling right with right now is the rise in domestic extremism and domestic terrorism. Uh, the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security have said that the greatest terrorist risk against our nation is domestic terrorism. And it's really uh, two new developments that make this point in time unique from any other point in history. I would say it's the rise of salad bar ideology as FBI Director Christopher Wray has called it, and what they call rapid radicalization. So first, with salad bar ideology, you know, a lot of the conceptions the American public have about terrorism going back 20 years ago today just don't add up. It's not folks, you know, training on some camp in the middle of the desert, getting rigidly indoctrinated um, to perform terrorist attacks. Um, Right now, the ideologies, because of the proliferation of the Internet and easy methods of communication, are uh, very flexible. So the salad bar idea is that terrorist networks are taking different ideas, like picking and choosing at a salad bar that they'll believe in without having a rigid structure. The reason this is so dangerous is it allows groups that don't really agree on much, but just have a propensity of violence to encourage and work with one another. So earlier this year, there was the January on January 15th, I believe, um, was the attack on Congregation Beth Israel down in Colleyville, Texas. Um, It was an Islamic extremist who ended up taking members of the congregation hostage. Days after the attack, there were white supremacist groups online that were saluting uh, the behavior by the radical Islamic 
group or sentiment. So these these two ideologies, they don't agree on much. They're pretty opposed to one another, but they're coming together to advocate for violence. And that's really dangerous. Uh, the second piece on that is the rapid radicalization. Uh, prior, folks before they would commit violence would have to be indoctrinated. But now with the internet, folks can get indoctrinated quickly. And especially with social media algorithms, people are amplifying content. So the folks who are most you know, inclined to view radical content are getting that content amplified to them. Um, you know, I think a perfect example is the, the attack that occurred at January 6th um, on our nation's capital. Um, a recent report in January suggests that only 11% of those who have been charged in the Capitol attack were folks who were part of a top-down um, extremist group. The other 90% were folks who just read things online, who had no prior affiliation with, with any group. So how do you how do you combat that problem? Um, then in the international space, real quick, kind of switching gears, I would say the biggest challenge we currently face is um, protecting our critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. Uh, warfare has become unconventional today, where it's not the the folks with the best military on the battlefield that'll win a, win a conflict. Uh, the United States military is definitely a superior force to our adversaries. But in the in the cyber domain, there's really three big problems as I see them. Um, the first one is attribution capabilities. Um, when somebody commits a cyber attack against the United States or critical infrastructure partners, it's difficult to attribute who's actually committing that attack. It could c come from Russia, but was it the Russian government? Was it a, a private group, et cetera? Um, the second big challenge is the proportional response by the United States, right? So in conventional warfare, if somebody attacks us or an actor, we respond in turn. But how do you respond to a cyber attack that you can't even attribute uh, cause to? And then the third problem, which the last part I'll touch up on and, and is really my biggest area of concern, is that there are 16 uh, critical risk management sectors uh, designated by the Department of Homeland Security. And these are all private companies. You know, you have private sector companies that are responsible for everyday operations in the United States to keep our economy moving, to protect people's lives and livelihoods. So these are things like the energy sector, 80% of it is owned by private companies. The agriculture sector, 100% privately owned, the reason you can go to the grocery store and buy food. The finance sector, the reason your credit card works when you go out. All of these things are private companies that um, are not necessarily working as closely maybe with the, the government that we would like, and they're vulnerable to attacks that can dehabilitate our way of life. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. That was a very thorough um, explanation of both uh, national and international security challenges relating, especially with cyber. And I actually have a question regarding um, the role of misinformation, um, whether that be with um, Brackle, um indoctrination, you know, with social media, I know you mentioned um, so much of the information has kind of been streamlined into disinformation. We're seeing so many of those campaigns being used um, to for, for terrorism and um, also looking at attribution techniques. Um, you know, I, I feel like that misinformation piece is really important. So I was wondering if you could just expand on that a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you bring in a critical, you bring in a great point, Stephanie, and it's this, this interplay and this tension we have constantly between, between free speech and misinformation. Um, I think on social media, especially one of the most difficult things is that, you know, before when people had maybe fringe ideas, right, they couldn't spread them as quickly and they couldn't galvanize to organize. Uh, but now with social media and especially social media companies, 
um, they profit off feeding people information that A, they want to see or that they're more inclined to agree with. Um, so not even talking about misinformation, if you like, you know, the New York Mets, you're going to get content coming up with, you know, baseball players and other things, et cetera. That's how the company keeps you locked in. Um, what we've seen with social media companies that I think is really dangerous, your, your Twitters, your Facebooks, is that um, when you have fringe ideologies, they're, they're amplifying that content superficially to their users. So folks are receiving things on their feed. Um, that are making them more inclined to maybe organize in a violent way. And it's not a genuine um, free speech issue at that point because the social media company is, is overriding that. They're, they're amplifying it superficially. So that's something really that I think is, is very dangerous and is, is making our pro- proclivity to, to these folks that are more inclined anyway to get involved, to just take that next step. Thank you so much for that, Chris. Um, I really found your explanation of um, algorithm use uh, really interesting um, as it relates to these topics. Uh, Moving to Mike, based on your interest in the military and national security, what do you see as some of the next emerging security challenges, both nationally and internationally? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that question. Um, So with what's been going on recently with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, Um, there have been a lot of new developments in terms of what's going to be the next future threat. And I think one of the things I'm most concerned about is nuclear weapons proliferation. Um, With Ukraine, you have seen an example of if you're a small country and you're under the gun of a big country, uh, it's highly likely that you might be on the wrong end of the offense-defense balance. Um, I think it was a few weeks ago, uh, Professor Talmadge here at Georgetown, uh, she published a really great article in the Wall Street Journal where basically she uh, talked about how U.S. nuclear deterrence when it comes to our uh, strategic interests doesn't really expand past the most forward U.S. soldier. Uh, And so, you know, this leads to the question of whether uh, we need to expand these tripwire deployments uh, in reference to Schilling's. Uh, Thomas Schilling's tripwire deployments in the tripwire deployments in his uh, his book Arms and Influence. Um, so, does that involve increasing deterrence by denial methods? Um, looking at Ukraine, uh, you know the ground war. Uh, it's it's focusing mostly on this porcupine strategy uh, and using ground to air missiles versus uh, achieving air superiority against the the Russian Air Force, and so it's it's concerning for a country like Taiwan, who uh, isn't really invested in this sort of strategy. Taiwan is basically focused on high end, prestigious equipment such as F-16s uh, within their defense apparatus uh, versus low end denial techniques such as uh, surface to air missiles, shoulder fired rockets. Uh, that are proven to have a lot of success right now in Ukraine. Uh, And so these types of tactics combined with an environment that's not very conducive to an insurgency style of warfare uh, within the island of Taiwan is very concerning. Those are some great insights, Mike. Thanks so much for sharing. I really like your opinion on um, pulling in what the future of nuclear deterrence might look like. And 
warfare today. Um, and we'll definitely be checking out Professor Challenge's article next. Um, based on your comparisons of Ukraine and Taiwan, are there any successful strategies you see with your pointed porcupine strategy in Ukraine that would be useful for Taiwan to implement, whether that's at the tactical level or domestic level? Okay, so when it comes to a Taiwan contingency uh, and we want to apply the lessons from what's going on in Ukraine, uh, we need to take the advantage or take the concept of the porcupine strategy that is operating with great success in Ukraine and apply that to the island of Taiwan. So what does that mean? In Taiwan, their military invests heavily in high technology uh, weapons such as the F-16 that aren't conducive to defending the island from an onslaught of the PLA. Um, what they need to be investing in is aircraft, uh, surface-to-air missiles, denial uh, material that prevents the PLA from taking the island that are low cost and effective, right? So looking at Ukraine, you see shoulder-fired missiles, you see SAM sites, you see this overlapping effects that don't involve aircraft you used heavily, uh, in taking out Russian aircraft over the airspace, and they're taking advantage of what is known as the air littoral. So that's anything 15,000 feet and below down to the ground. And so that is what I would recommend in applying to Taiwan rather than their current trajectory of using uh, F-16s and other high-performance aircraft and trying to defend the island. Thank you, Mike. Um, Chris, moving on to this question for you. Uh, what are your policy recommendations for security challenges um, in the cyber realm? Thanks so much for that question, Stephanie. It's a great one. And I think, you know, it really starts with, in my mind, a reallocation of our resources and our priorities to meet our current threats. Uh, so, you know, for instance, the, the Department of Defense annual budget, I want to say, is somewhere around $730 billion. Um, and likewise, the Department of Homeland Security's budget is around $50 billion. Now, tucked in the Department of Homeland Security is CISA, the Cyber Security Infrastructure and Security Agency. And CISA has been tasked with defending and helping our private sector partners create a cyber infrastructure that protects them from potential attacks. So those 16 critical infrastructure sectors that I mentioned, CISA works with these partners to try to make sure that they're not vulnerable and also works with our small businesses. Now, CISA's annual budget is around two to $3 billion. So you're comparing on the one end, uh, the DOD's budget, 730 billion to CISA with a tall task ahead of them with only in the two to $3 billion range. I think we need to up our resources for CISA so they can better work with our private sector partners. Um, on top of that, I think there needs to be a massive influx or emphasis on public-private partnerships that the Department of Homeland Security can utilize to better understand the threats that critical infrastructure operators face. Um, there's a term that we frequently use called the cybersecurity poverty line, and our defenses are only as strong as that poverty line. So what does that mean? Well, when you think about something like a, a wastewater treatment facility um, that's in Florida, for instance, there was an attack within recent years where a Florida wastewater treatment facility um, was compromised where chlorine levels 
were adjusted in the water. Now it was this this attack was caught before it ever went out to the public, but it could have had catastrophic effects on the health and well-being of everyday Americans. So we're only as strong as our weakest rural hospital or our you know rural treatment facility or you know even a an energy operator or part of the energy grid that is relying on technology that's 20 years old. We need to lift everybody up and we need to better understand the the problems that the private sector face because the government can't protect everyday Americans on their own. It needs to be a two-way street. Yeah, thank you so much for that insight, Chris. Um, I know that um, private-public partnerships, especially Grand critical infrastructure, is a really interesting research topic that I'm interested in. So I was wondering if you could um, elaborate on some of the sectors that you feel like private-public partnerships um, are really starting to occur um, right now or that you feel like would be really useful. Yeah, so you know, pretty much in the, in the critical infrastructure sectors, a lot of folks look at the finance sector as the most advanced because they have the most resources. Um, when you have these big investment banks and conglomerates that can afford to pay a lot for cybersecurity firms to come in and protect their systems, um, they're obviously gonna be kind of ahead of the curve. Where I think we really need uh, improvement in particular would I think when you look at our, our healthcare sector and you look at our agriculture sector. So healthcare, for instance, um, hospital systems and providers, you don't have to attack a hospital system's medical equipment to dehabilitate that hospital. In 2019 in New Jersey, there was a ransomware attack against uh, Meridian Health Hospital Systems, and they actually attacked the payroll system at that hospital. Employees weren't getting paid, so then they couldn't come into work. There was a backlog, there were staffing shortages, and that obviously compromises the quality of care. Um, so you don't even have to attack the critical infrastructure itself to have a real impact on the resources that everyday people need. If people need hospital procedures, we need functioning hospitals. If people want to go to the supermarket and buy foods at, at low prices, well, the agriculture sector, you know, they rely on all sorts of data to make sure their crop yields are up that month, to make sure that their supply chains are in order. And if any of those spots on the supply line are compromised. And as you can imagine, the agriculture sector, a lot of the technology is not very advanced that they're using. It's susceptible to risk. Um, then it's going to have a big impact. So those two sectors would really be a point of emphasis, in my opinion. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. I really find your ideas on infrastructure security uh, super important and relevant. Uh, studying how the water infrastructure was uh, in, was compromised, I think is just shows one element currently um, that might not be getting in enough attention as it is maybe should be uh, for domestic policy. Um, and your, your point on the 16 different um, focuses by privately owned companies or the 16 critical risk management strategies, privately owned companies, something I've never thought about either. Uh, so that, really appreciate you bringing that up something to for our listeners to consider as well um michael now now to you so since you've spoken both on kind of nuclear deterrence considerations um and also potential military security challenges both in in europe and in asia um kind of a, a wide umbrella of policy recommendations for these two spheres but are there any that you might have um 
in either of these areas or see, see things that we're, the U.S. is currently doing well or any nation's current doing well in addressing emerging uh, security challenges in these areas? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, so I think one thing in terms of a policy or a strategy towards the Indo-Pacific in terms of avoiding a conflict within that region is looking at our logic for engagement. Uh, there is this, there's a buzzword going around uh, within a lot of Indo-Pacific security related issues known as strategic, strategic stability. Um, so what does that mean? Cooperation does not really solve political and strategic disputes within the region. Uh, but it does kind of help lessen the tension and the mistrust between the two powers of China and the United States. Uh, you know, nuclear weapons, for example, um, China has a no first use policy. The United States is very ambiguous on what its policy is. The U.S. worries about a expanded Chinese nuclear arsenal. China worries about ballistic missile defense interdiction, right? Why do they worry about that? They, they believe that if the United States has such a superior ballistic missile defense, China won't be able to penetrate it. Therefore, they don't have a secure second of strike capability, thus weakening the deterrent effect of its arsenal. So what does strategic stability address? So stability, it's grounded in this model that could help address these anxieties. Right? On the U.S. side, it provides deeper insight into China's nuclear strategy and its current and future force structure. And on the Chinese side, it helps by providing similar insight into U.S. developments and a greater degree of assurance about U.S. acknowledgement of the survivability of China's force, right? So doing this decreases the risks if both sides can posture in ways where neither can launch an effective disarming strike nor is vulnerable to one. It kind of keeps a different value in both sense. So maybe this could be applied to further conventional means um, because this is specifically with regard to uh, nuclear deterrence, but maybe this could apply to the way we operate our Navy and our Air Force within the region when it comes to freedom of navigation patrols. Uh, you know, there's currently almost zero military diplomacy conducted between the PLA and US military. And so maybe increasing these numbers and these exercises might kind of reassure both sides uh, it's, like I said, it's not going to solve the issue, but it'll at least calm each other down uh, so they don't automatically jump to the worst case scenario if something were to happen. Thank you both so much. Uh, we really appreciate your insights on both of these uh, critical issues. And as we near the end of our shows, we like to wrap by talking about personal things that we've learned or taken away from studying security. So um, is there any advice you have received from mentors or other security professionals that you have found really helpful as you have been navigating your studies at Georgetown or elsewhere in the security field? Or are there any tips that you might want to share with peers or listeners that you've learned while pursuing a career in security studies? Uh, Mike, we'll start with you. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so the biggest thing I've Biggest lesson I've learned so far is just uh, becoming a better writer and getting your ideas out there. Um, you know, I think it was Ken Allen. Uh, he works, he used to work at the uh, Air Force Aerospace Institute. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that name uh, for any Air Force people out there, but um, he, one of the biggest 
pieces of advice he gave to us when he came and spoke to our uh, SCST 583 class was that uh, if you don't get your ideas out there, nobody's going to know who you are. And so I think that was the biggest piece of advice that I took uh, that I, you know, try to accentuate in terms of just writing, publishing, and getting your ideas and thoughts out there. Great. Uh, Chris, any comments or um, advice to share? Yeah, thanks so much. You know, it's been such a great conversation. Stephanie, Alice, and Michael, I've really enjoyed speaking with you guys today. My biggest piece of advice or the thing that's most helpful for me and I've learned is just always being open-minded and asking questions. Uh, I know it sounds corny, but there are so many great experts at Georgetown who are really pros in their field that you can learn from. I've always taken the mentality, you know, try to assume I know nothing about a topic. Uh, never be afraid to ask questions that might seem obvious. And, you know, there's nothing better than than learning something new, having your preconceived biases challenged, um, and really venturing out of your comfort zone. So I would try to do that as much as possible in our experience here in Georgetown. I also just want to, you know, highlight um, if if you've been interested in anything I've spoken about today, you know, some further resources maybe that you can check out. Um, the Homeland Security Committee has hearings in the House of Representatives that are broadcasted, that are, you can read testimony by witnesses. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening that a lot of people are not in tuned to see. Additionally, uh, the Atlantic Council has the Cyber Strategic Initiative, which is a great resource and project. So a lot of the things that I've spoken about with critical infrastructure, if you want to learn more, check that out. And then also the Aerospace Security Project at CSIS, they do an annual uh, threat assessment that just came out within the last two weeks. So if you're interested in learning more about the space domain and cybersecurity there, I encourage you to check out that resource too. Awesome. Yeah, I listening on those hearings, I would uh, find that very enlightening, I'm sure. So I appreciate you pulling out that reference for us, Chris. All right. Well, you guys, thank you so much for joining us today for such a lively and engaging discussion. You have given Steph, I, and our audience some creative insights and a lot to think about for the future. We wish you both the best of luck with your studies at Georgetown and in your careers. Thank you to all of our listeners. This is the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review. Please check out the summary of this episode to find out more information about our guests and subscribe to the podcast so that you can be notified of the release of our next episode. 